You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for waiting. My name is Andreas Delset. I'm the program director at the House of Literature, and I'm extremely glad to welcome you all, all, uh, all uh, listening, uh, attending this event. Um, and I'm really proud to introduce and welcome back to the House of Literature uh, one of our favorite authors, Chibamanda Ngozi Adichie. For what I, um, and I, uh, I'm particularly glad to invite her back for what I think is of the perfect finale of the 10-year anniversary of the House of Literature. The perfect finale partly because Chimamanda Adichie has been one of our favorite authors and guests on several locations over the last 10 years, starting with the 2009 program African Week, when her sh which was, uh, happened just after the short story collection The Thing Around Your Neck, Kvernlingsfornemmelser, uh, was published in Norwegian translation. And uh, perhaps I would suggest with the 2013 visit as a highlight, when she both spoke about her most recent novel, Americana, but also uh, was here in conversation with Toril Moy and Sophie Oxenen, a conversation which has been included in our 10-year anniversary anthology, which you can get for free on the way out by the door. So, uh, with four critically acclaimed books, currently in translation into more than 30 languages, and this is the main reason why this is the perfect finale of the anniversary. With, more than four, with four books critically acclaimed and into translation into more than 30 languages, uh, Chimanda Adichie has become one of the most important authors in the world today. And on top of the four books, two beautiful and poignant pamphlets, as we, call, we activists call it, We Should All Be Feminists and Dir Ijawele, or a feminist manifesto in 15 suggestions, published in the last two years, which has added, in my uh, opinion, yet another dimension and a point of view to read her, uh, the, the rest of her body of work, and that has also inspired us uh, as fathers, as mothers, as people, to think about how we are in the world today. To speak with her tonight, we have uh, uh, the fortune of having uh, Anna Farstos, who's the cultural editor of Mornblade. Please welcome Arnold Farstos and Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. Thank you. It's an honor to be here with you, Chimamanda. Thank you all for coming. Of course, uh, you have... Um, a talk in which you uh, warn us of the danger of a single story. So I won't try to um, just create one story for you tonight. We'll make it more and more complex as we go. But just as a starter, I think we should start with your latest book, Dir Ejawele, a feminist manifesto in 15 suggestions, and maybe just the story of how this book came about. It's presented as a letter to your friend who has yes. just had a yes. child? Uh, yes. Um, so, well, first of all, thank you all for being here. It's, it's really lovely for me to be back in Oslo. I, 
came from Paris and I got off the plane in Oslo and I immediately felt at home. I thought this is by far the superior city. So, <laughs> so I'm happy to be back here. Thank you. I, and also, it's just really lovely to see some of my favorite people sitting in front. Katya and Anna. <laughs> um, uh, so I wrote this book before I, I had a baby. I have a two-year-old daughter. But before I, I, um, before I had her, before I was pregnant, a friend of mine said to me, she had a daughter, and she said to me, I want to raise her a feminist, and I want you to tell me how to do it. And of course, I thought, I, I, I don't know how. I mean, <laughs> it, it felt like a very big thing to be asked. But I was very moved by her saying to me that she wanted her daughter to have, to have it better than she had. And, and so at first I resisted, but I started to think about it, and I thought, I haven't actually mapped out my own feminist thinking for myself. I mean, I've, I've talked a lot about gender inequality, and, but I, and, and I've talked a lot about what I think we need to change, but I realized I hadn't actually um, articulated it. And so for me, it became a way to map out my own feminist thinking. So I started to write it in an email. It was an email that I wrote to her, and it was longer than that, a bit more rambly, because I edited it to, to publish it. And it just made, made it... Um, I wanted it to be practical. I wanted it to... And to be honest, I just thought I'm going to write to her what I really think. She doesn't have to follow it, of course. Mm. But I really like telling people what to do, so... <laughs> you do? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So it wasn't very difficult. <laughs> and you also have friends who like getting advice, then. <laughs> well, she seemed to. Um, not all my friends do, sadly. But um, <laughs> she... Uh, and I remember she said to me that she was a bit overwhelmed when she first read it, but she said, I will try. And... Mm. And I'm happy to announce that her daughter is now almost four and is a spirited, wonderful little girl who, mm. you know, so I, I think those, those things might have worked. Mm. <laughs> maybe, maybe. And the book, of course, has 15 suggestions, but it also starts off with two basic tools yeah. that she, she needs to yeah. uh, have in life. What are um, those two tools? The tools are, and, and I should say that calling them, I mean, it seems a bit... It's not the most elegant way of putting it, but I thought, again, because I think of this in some ways as a practical handbook. And, and for me, it was important because I think that I think feminism, I think the idea that men and women are equal is a universal one. But I think that, that it manifests itself in different ways, depending on culture, class, race, all of those things, which is why I think the tools are important, because I don't think there is one single feminist answer to anything. I think it's always about context. And for me, the first tool is the idea that one matters. I think we, I think really all over the world that women, girls are raised to, to reduce themselves. We're raised to think of ourselves as the caregivers, as the ones who sacrifice, and the ones who compromise. And, and, and at some point, we start to think that we don't quite matter as much as men do. And so for me, the first tool is the idea that, that you matter. That, that, that a woman matters, that a woman matters equally. And it might seem, it might kind of seem obvious, but it really isn't. Because mm. you sort of listen to the way that women understand their own lives, and you start to see that many women don't actually believe that they matter equally. Mm. And so for me, it was a way of telling my friend, you have to tell yourself this every day, that you matter equally. And I think it, sh it starts to shape um, the choices that you make. And then the second thing is to reverse things. Because... In a strange kind of way, um, I've been reading 
uh, I've been reading a, f a few uh, reviews of Hillary Clinton's book. I was going mm. to try not to bring in Hillary Clinton, but it's impossible. It's impossible, me. yeah. <laughs> and I was hoping I would maybe halfway through, but sorry. <laughs> so, and so one of the reviews, and you know, she's been getting what, what appears to me unfair criticism from both the right and the left. And one of the reviews from somebody on the left said something about how she needed to stop whining about how, um, how she had been treated in a way that was different from how the male candidate had been treated. And I remember being struck by that because that is in fact the only way that we can diagnose sexism. It's always in comparison to how men are treated. And so of course she has to say that because um, the only way that sexism makes sense is by comparing the way women are treated to the way men are treated. And so the second tool is reversing things. So if um, you know, something happens with a man and he's judged in a certain way and you turn it around and the woman should be judged the same way. And it doesn't always, I mean, it's a, it's a tool that's a little more iffy because sometimes it doesn't work, hmm. but it's still a useful way to think about, think about um, sort of the feminist response to things in the world. Yeah. Because you say it's about asking if X is a problem. Is X a problem for everyone, or yeah. is it just a problem if it's a if it's a woman, yeah. like being whiny, for example? Yep. yep. Which means for me that that a person who complains about Hillary Clinton being whiny and doesn't complain about the whiner in chief, who is the president yeah. of the US, <laughs> then then that person doesn't have a problem with whining. Yeah. That person has a problem with women. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 you know, we see this, it, it happens so often. And, and I think it happens so sort of casually that sometimes it, beco it seems normal it, and we bec it becomes invisible mm. where we don't even see it anymore. And um, you write about also something, you warn this young girl about something called feminism light. <laughs> What is that and how would you describe that? Um... <laughs> Feminism light, I think of as the idea that women are conditionally equal. And I'm going to use some common expressions in Nigeria where somebody will say to you, oh, the man is the driver, but you're in the front seat. <laughs> Or, and I'm guessing some women here have heard things like that. Or they'll tell you, he's the head, but you're the neck. <laughs> so it really means you control the head. You know, that sort of nonsense. Yeah. And... There are also these ideas of, um, you know, you, sort of, you're equal, but the man is slightly more equal. Mm. And then the expectation on the man is that he has to treat you well. And I find that even more dangerous than just the outright um, declaration that women are not equal. Because it, I think it's, it's more dangerous because it's that kind of thinking that makes women stay in situations that are dangerous to them, that diminish them. You know, when you're told that somehow, um, you know, the man m might be a bit more equal than you, but he has to treat you well. So then your, your human dignity depends on the benevolence of a man. And mm. I find that deeply dehumanizing. Mm. So in, in talking, and I, and I encounter what I think of as feminism light all the time. There's so many women who will say to me, you know, um, Yes, things are, you know, things are almost equal for us, mm. but, but I have to ABC compromise, sacrifice, and, and I just think, well, they're not. I mean, yeah. things are either equal almost, or they are. Not. Yeah, yeah. It's really, I mean, it's either it's equal or it's not equal. Yeah. So it was important for me to, to talk about that because I think that's the more difficult thing to, 
to counter. Mm. Yeah. And of course, the word itself, uh, feminist, can be used in different ways. It can mm -hmm. be used aggressively, but also mm -hmm. understandingly. Mm -hmm. As you say, in um, We Should All Be Feminists, mm -hmm. you describe this scene where uh, you're playing with a boy and he tells you, you're a feminist, mm -hmm. and you hear, you're a terrorist. Yep. <laughs> yep. You should have seen his expression. He just was really, it's like, you're a feminist. Yeah. And I thought, yes, that has to be what I am. But you know, I'm actually curious about, but, but is feminist a good word in Norway? I think it's a little bit... Uh, is it loaded? A little bit the same. Like, of course, it's, it's positive, but I think it can be used also uh, aggressively, mm. like, like mm. you stated. Where there are all of the negative stereotypes attached to it, so that there are young women today who will say, I'm not a feminist, because they, you know, they want to be the cool girls. They yeah. want to be the girls who... Um, who don't threaten the boys because sometimes feminists can just by just by saying that word become a threat to certain people and it brings about an incredible amount of hostility mm. I kind of knew before I took on this public face of feminism but having taken it on it's just shocking to me yeah <laughs> uh, that just it's 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 like pressing a button you say feminism and there's just hostility it yeah. just comes at you <laughs> and then people People project things onto you. So, you know, in Nigeria, I've had the good fortune of being called a marriage destroyer, um, <laughs> a, a person who's confusing young women, a person who wants to emasculate men. I hate that word, emasculate. Yeah. But, I mean, there's just all kinds of things. And it's also interesting because taking on this feminism sort of um, mantle, in a way, means that if you take a glass of water and drink it, they're like, oh, God, that's what is she doing with a feminist? It, it, everything is colored by it, right? Yeah. <laughs> you, it can't just a feminist be... Sip. Yeah, yeah, you just can't be taking a glass of water anymore. Everything becomes colored by it. But <laughs> And is that why you wanted to use the word feminist in your uh, talk and essay, We Should All Be Feminists, to take that wanted, back yeah, or yeah, to make it stronger important. or... We need to take it back. We need a word. And, and fe feminist works for me. There are people who have said to me, why don't you call yourself a humanist? Or, um, or, or the other word, womanist, which mm. um, has... I mean, there's, there's sort of a womanist following, and I think it may be particularly American um, and particularly black American. Um, but I also think it's misunderstood because Alice Walker coined that word, and she said that a womanist is a feminist, just mm. one who's black. Yeah. Um, and, and it, it came from sort of this tradition in which white American feminism had excluded black women and mm. other women of color. So, but for me, feminist is a word that works. The dictionary meaning works for me. And, mm. and, and I think that to solve a problem, we have to name it. And I think maybe the, the fact that it makes some people uncomfortable is itself proof of how necessary and important it is. And, and, and you know, and I, and I want young people to... to um, to embrace it, to debate it, to, to make it ordinary. Mm. I mean, of course, the whole goal of feminism is to make itself redundant. Yeah. We want to live in a world where we don't need to be we feminists. And um, so the word works for me. And, I, and, and obviously, I know that it's easier to claim a more watery word. I mean, if I said I'm a humanist, I don't think I would get as much hostility. No. Right? <laughs> but then saying I'm a humanist isn't naming the problem. Mm. The problem is that it's women who have been excluded and persecuted and abused. You know, and it, it's not humanity. It's women mm. because they're women. Mm. And I think it's important to name the problem. And I, 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 um, when, when I'm told by some men 
that I should call myself a humanist, I've, I've made up a story that I tell them. I say to them, now what if you had a problem with your prostate and you went to the doctor? <laughs> and the doctor says, the problem is your prostate. And then um, the doctor says, I'm going to give you some medicine for your prostate. And then the man says, no, give me some medicine for my whole body. <laughs> right, you see? Yeah. And usually when I, when I say this to men, they look a bit confused. And then they're like, I don't even know what the hell she's talking about. And then, and then sometimes slowly they get it. They're like, oh, right. So you're making a case for using the word feminist. I'm like, yes. <laughs> yeah. that, that is the case I'm making. And when I read your suggestions, the 15 points, I get the feeling that you think there is quite a lot of nonsense around when it comes to talking about gender and women and how people talk about women. Yes. For, yeah. <laughs> For example, this idea that uh, women are uh, better or kinder mm. or more special, a mm. different species of a mm. uh, human mm. being. Yes. I think that's one of the things that we... And when I say we, I said we, I mean we in the, you know, the tribe of feminists, both men and women, need to start to um, dismantle this idea that women are somehow special or better. They're not. Women are not special, yeah. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> yeah. Women are ordinary. Women are normal. Women yeah. are human. And I think that, that that thinking of women as somehow morally better, women are somehow special, is so dangerous. And it's part of the reason, for example, that... We judge women differently. Um, so in Nigeria, I'm constantly struck by how men who are politicians are routinely corrupt and steal. And, you know, they're criticized and it sort of passes. A woman politician steals, it becomes just the most, it becomes the biggest thing ever. Yeah. And people just say, imagine a woman stealing. And I just think, <laughs> why, why is that? I mean, she's human, right? Mm. I mean, the, the idea that, that women... That, there, you know, that in, in sort of the, the world of women, that there is good and bad, as there is in the world of men, is something that in talking, I find that just the, the discourse around women, um, it, it's ostensibly elevating women, but it's really not. Mm. You know, that idea that you place a woman on a pedestal, or even the language of it when men say, I respect women. Yes. It really bothers me. <laughs> It just, bothers me so much. Yeah. It I comes mean, from that same kind of thinking. Women yeah. as a part, yeah. somehow better, yeah. somehow to be venerated. I'm just like, no. Yeah. You know, there's so many women I do not bloody want to venerate. I mean, it's yeah. ridiculous, right? <laughs> but, but also it means then that the, the judgment standards become different. Yeah. For women, it's much higher because yeah. of this idea that there's somehow, you know, angels come down from heaven. Um, but also I think it, women internalize it. And I think that's why I really think I've lately become convinced that it's a conspiracy to get women to continue to sacrifice, compromise, reduce themselves. Mm. So when someone says, you're so good, you're mm. so good, then you think, all right, I better let my dreams die. Yeah. You know. Whenever men say or write, I just love women, I'm always really worried. It's like, yep. I don't want anything to do with that yep. guy. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it really worries me too. And I find actually that the, the women who get that kind of love, you know, we love you, are often the women that sort of conform to those ideas. <laughs> yeah. I love that laughter. Yeah. The, women, the women that conform to those sort of self-diminishing, you know, hold yourself back and you're praised excessively for it. Yeah. And I think this is true in all cultures, really. And, and it's just, uh, I think it's a very dangerous thing. Hmm. I agree. I always get into trouble with men who, who say this. Yeah. 
Um, in the book, you also write that gender and race are both systems of oppression, oppression but sexism, for some reason, provokes you even more. Is that the um, context that you're in, or is that a general no. statement? Um, no, it's not a general statement, yeah. and, I, and I can't tell you how many black people have written to me. Did yeah, you say about that, that racism is... It looks very controversial when you see it, the statement yeah, on page. Yeah, but, it, but it's really not. And, and obviously yeah. I can't possibly say that racism is not as bad as sexism. And I can't even... I mean, to compare both would just be silly. Yeah. Because... I don't wake up on some days and decide I'm black and then on other days decide I'm a woman. Yeah. Right? I'm both at the same time. So it's strange to... Sometimes actually things happen and I don't know why. I mean, it's, it's hard to... They're interlinked. Yeah. Um, what I was saying is that in my own circle of, of people I know and love, racism is something they all get. And I mean people of all races. The yeah. people who I care about, black people, white people, Asian people, Hispanic people... <laughs> in my circle, all get anti-black racism. Mm. I, don't, I don't ever have to explain it. Mm. I'm never expected to um, prove it. Mm. You know. When we talk about racism, it's obvious that everybody gets it. But that's not the case with sexism. Mm. I find that even with people I care about and love, I'm often expected to prove that sexism exists or that, or that Clinton, once again, um, suffered from that, that part of the... the the reason she lost and the reason she was covered, the way she was covered, was because of misogyny. Mm. I can't tell you how many times I've been asked, do you really think it's because she was a woman? So things that seem quite obvious to me, mm. I find that even with people who know me well, people, I, I'm, and, and I find myself then getting a little defensive, but mostly I find myself feeling lonely mm. because, you know, you want the people around you and the people you love to, to instantly get the thing that matters a lot to you. And when they don't, it's a very lonely feeling. Mm. And, and, you know, sometimes I rise up to it and I make the case because I, you know, I, I feel that we need to get everybody on board. But it can also be emotionally exhausting. Yeah, mm. that nobody sees it. Yeah, yeah. I was also wondering whether there was a difference between the US context and the Nigerian context to that statement, uh, since you um, live in two Yeah, there parts is. Of I mean, in Nigeria, it's a lot more overt. It's in, in the US, it's a lot more layered. And I think yeah. that's really the only difference. It's the same thing. Yeah. In, in the US, somebody would say to you, I won't vote for her. I, I can't vote for a woman. A woman cannot be governor, that sort of thing. In the US, I don't think anybody I know would say that, but they would probably think it. Mm which I think is really what happened in many parts of America with, with Clinton. And, and I should say with women and men, not just men. Yeah. I mean, there are many women who will not vote for a woman because she's a woman. Yeah. And I think in Nigeria, I mean, I guess I find that I'm often made to make the case for sexism maybe more frequently in Nigeria because, you know, I have friends, progressive, intelligent, thoughtful men who will say things to me like, oh, but women really have the power because women control men. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, it's, it's, it's very interesting, and they, they seem to believe this. And, and in my thinking, you know, I would rather be the person who has the access to power. I don't yeah. want to be the person who controls the person who has access like to a power, puppet. you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Can I just, you know, I, I'd like the power, thank you. Yeah. But, but I find that I, I, find that I, I make, I, in Nigeria, I'm, I'm often making the case more, but, but in the U.S., with, with quite a few of my progressive friends... Um, who were not Clinton supporters and who therefore decided to become willfully blind to misogyny, mm. I also had to make the case. Mm. 
But sometimes I'm just like, I'm, I'm tired. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but a lot of people, you have managed to make the case to a lot of readers because these books, mm. these two pamphlets have really reached a lot of mm. people. Mm. Why do you think uh, it connects to something now or to readers now? Do you <sighs> think it's, they have had the impact that they have had? I think it's because the language is accessible. I think it's because I'm telling women what they already know because I really don't think I'm bringing any news to women. Mm. You know, I think, I think every woman in the world knows. Um, but I think it's being done in language that's accessible. I don't do jargon. I don't do theory. Um, and I think maybe it comes from being a novelist, because I, I distrust theory, and I believe in stories. Mm. And I, I think storytelling is a way to make a connection. And I think telling stories that illustrate why there's a problem with gender connects with people. And I think maybe with men, um, because I'm quite happy to have some male readers. Yeah. Of these books. I think with, with men, it's that they don't feel um, that it's an indictment. I think that the men for whom feminism is something to shy away from or something to defend themselves against. And so they don't actually hear what's being said. And... So I kind of like to think that. I mean, the, the young men, in particular young men, because I kind of, I don't really have much hope for older men. I, you know, I just... <laughs> but, but younger men... Sorry, but... Yeah. You know, um, younger men, and that's why I believe so much that we have to start early. Mm. And so when I talk to younger men, and I, and I feel that I'm making a connection, they're suddenly thinking, you know, you're right. And I talked to a bunch of kids in Washington, D.C. some weeks ago, and, and this young man, African-American, the kind of kid you just would never imagine even thinking about feminism, he comes up to me, he's like, yeah, I kind of agree with you in that book. Mm. So does it mean I'm a feminist? Mm. And he, he wasn't <laughs> happy. <worried>? Yeah. <laughs> he wasn't happy that he it might happy. mean he, he might wasn't... be a feminist. Yes. Like... But, but I, I thought that was progress. I said, yeah. so you agree? He said, yeah, it kind of makes sense. Yeah, I yeah. see that. And, and he made me very happy because I thought maybe he'll go out and talk to his friends about, you know what, guys, this whole thing about, you know, I don't know, um, cat-calling girls or, or these sort of random casual jokes about violence about, uh, against girls, maybe it's actually not such a good idea. Yeah. So, so for me, it's, it's just little practical things like yeah. that. You know, yeah. That would be great. Um, I mean, we hope so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, as you say, the, it's a letter to your friend who has just had a child mm. and now you have a child yourself and you write that... Now you know <laughs> that <laughs> child raising is uh, not an easy task. Yeah, you... I was saying that if I, if I were to write this letter again, I would start by telling her I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry for being so smug and certain. You know, I just thought, follow these rules and all will be fine. All will be good. <laughs> but then I have a baby and I suddenly realize it's, it's in some ways like the universe is conspiring against you. Mm. Right? You have all of these sort of ideas about how it's supposed to be, but the universe has other ideas. Yeah. And, and I just see it everywhere. So now I'm just thinking, my God, it's hard. It's hard to, I mean, these very ingrained ideas of gender. You know, I go to the store and, and even the diapers, I'm like, baby boys and baby girls are kind of the same. same. Right? Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the male organ hasn't come to the point where it needs extra, extra space. Extra space, no. <laughs> but no, they, they, they have the girls' diapers and the boys' diapers. I mean, it, uh, and... <laughs> So, so once they didn't have the pink girls' diaper, so I got yeah. the boys, yeah. you know. And I get home, and my mother says, you got the boys? <gasps> and I said, yes. Right? I mean, nothing, nothing will happen. They're diapers. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's that our thinking is so gendered now. And, and, and I look at the advertising for everything, and 
you know, sort of this idea that girls have to become people who learn the art of seduction. Yeah. And how that, I, there's just so much bullshit. And, and, and I look at clothes for four-year-olds and the dresses are so sexualized. Mm. It, and they're bras for people who are three. And I'm yeah. just like, they're no breasts. What <laughs> yeah. the hell is going on? I mean, and, and it's just this kind of sexualizing of, of, of girls that starts way too early and, and just teaches them to dislike themselves. Mm. I think we start too early. We just teach girls. to. And so I find myself just pushing against too much. And suddenly I think I, it's hard. It's hard I mean, work. It's really hard. It's hard. <laughs> but you've it's just hard. begun that work. I have, and I'm going to continue because I think that's the only way. I mean, and, and I think that when there's a critical mass of people resisting this, it starts to change. I mean, it's changing a little. There, there are toy companies now in the U.S., for example, that are making toys that are not gendered because they understand that any human being can be interested in helicopters, for example. Mm. My daughter isn't really keen on soft, cuddly things, which I was told babies like. Mm. But she's like, poof. Um, what does she want? She wants to play with my car key mm. for some reason. Yeah. Um, and she likes fiddling with her father's uh, toolkit. Mm. I mean, I'm not sure if this means she's going to grow up to be a mechanic, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, just, it, it's interesting to me. She's just two. And it's not like I'm... So I'm open to her having dolls. Yeah. Right? It's not that I'm, I'm sort of going to be this crazy person who says you can't have any girly thing. But there's also a part of me that's secretly pleased that she doesn't seem drawn to them so far. Yeah. <laughs> um, and of course, one of your pieces of advice is to uh, identify language and to be critical mm. of language, mm. like the word princess or other mm. gendered uh, Things. When did mm. this begin for you yourself? Of course, you have. You're, as a novelist, you're very aware of language. When did you begin to mm. have this critical thinking? Huh. That's, I, I don't know. Um, I don't know. And in some ways, I think it's probably still an ongoing thing. I, I like to think of myself as I'm, I'm still learning, right? So I'm still, I still catch myself saying certain things, and I, you know, want to smack myself. Um, so, so, for example, not long ago, a friend of mine was telling me about going to a doctor, and I said to her, what did he say? And she started laughing. She's like, the doctor was a woman. Oh, yeah. And I just thought, oh, oh. my, I can't believe it. You know, yeah. I... I <laughs> but then again, I think, it, I think for me, then I start to question, well, maybe language shouldn't have um, gendered pronouns. Yeah. Uh, Igbo doesn't. It doesn't? So, no, no, no. No. So he or she is the same thing. It's which, the same thing. Which is very useful. Yeah. <laughs> for being caught in these slips. But I don't know. I think... I think... Oh, look. Oh. There's someone <laughs> who's being raced right oh. now. Yeah. <laughs> um, babies are the loveliest things in the yeah. world. I, don't, I, I think it's been an ongoing process. I think being a reader in particular just makes you more alert to language and, and becoming... Um, increasingly just socially present and aware. You just, uh, I'm, I'm very alert to language and I, I um, and very alert to the way that language masks things. Mm. You know, the way that we talk about things can mask what they, they mean. Mm. And I often find myself um, resisting a lot of, um, a lot of things. I, I uh, but I, I don't think I, I know when I started to. Mm. 
Because I think uh, your talk, the danger of a single story, yeah. is really interesting in so many ways. But it also describes how you started to read and how you started yeah. to write. Yeah. Uh, and that has something to do with language and what kind of words were available, what kind of des descriptions, because you were reading yeah. uh, like British uh, yeah. stories yeah. about only white people, uh, only people saying how lovely, what a lovely day, it's great that the sun has come out. Yeah. But in Nigeria, that's not even an issue. No, no nobody. And, and you know, for a long time, I wondered what the hell these people talk about when they talk about the weather. Yeah. It was always in, in all of these books, you know, they'd be like, oh, she arrived and they made small talk and they talked about the weather. And I would think, really? I mean, what are they talking about? Yeah. And <laughs> so I would then write stories in which my characters would talk about the weather. Yeah. And only later did I realize it made no sense in Nigeria. I mean, no, nobody talks about the weather. I mean, yeah. it, it, it's just, it, nobody does. But, but it's, you know, really just proof of how we are so, um, we're shaped by what we read, we're shaped by what we're exposed to, we're shaped by what we have access to. And, and in my young mind, a book was something in which white people did things. Mm. It wasn't something in which people like me did things that people like me did. Mm. And it, it took a while, and reading different kinds of books for me to get that. And, and I think this is not something that's unique to me. It's something I think that's true in, in most parts of the world that were, um, that were colonized. Mm. So I have friends from India who have exactly the same stories. Mm. They read Famous Five and they were like, what the heck is ginger beer? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, 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 and not just that you wonder what those things are, but because those things are in books and because books are, are these um, hallowed objects, mm. those things become aspirational. Yeah. So you start to dream of ginger beer, as mm. I did for very long. Yeah. You know, <laughs> until then you actually have ginger beer and you're like, nope. <laughs> no <Not> thanks. <laughs> Because what you describe is literature as a kind of a foreign land where everything yeah. is foreign inside yeah. literature. Yeah. It has very little to do with your uh, personal life. Yeah. Yeah. But still you enjoy those trips mm -hmm. into, into the foreign lands. Yeah. And also a product in many ways for me of a limited colonized education. Because, I, because to be educated in Nigeria was to be educated entirely in English and to be educated with, you know, something that was supposed to be a Nigerian curriculum, but was really an aping of the British. And so it was to be raised not realizing that, that I came from a tradition of literature, mostly oral, mm. but that it was rich and beautiful. And nobody told me that. Yeah. You know. so, so literature was, um, was foreign, mm. exciting, enjoyable, mm. you know, but foreign. Mm. And how did you bridge that gap then between your own world, your own experiences and literature? How did that happen? By, by reading African stories, by discovering people like... Actually, the, the first book for me that, that I remember having such a... a, a just being eye-opening was a book called The Dark Child, mm. um, which was originally published in French as um, L'Enfant Noir by Kamara Laye, who was a writer from Guinea. And... Um, I read it, you know, I was fairly young, and it was just magical. I loved it, and it was about this little boy in this West African village, and he, you know, he goes up to school, and later he goes to Paris, and he comes, and it's just, it was, it felt so familiar, but also exotic, because it, things I didn't quite get, because I was Nigerian, and, and, and those characters were not, but it, it opened things for me. It made me realize 
this is what's possible. Mm-hmm. And then I, I went on to read you know, Chino Achebe, who I, who I ended up just adoring, and, and to read many other writers. But I think of The Dark Child as the book that opened the door mm. for me to realize that um, literature was also mine. Yeah. Mm. And how important has Chino Achebe been to your writing? He's uh, very important. Yeah. <laughs> He, uh, I think he, he was just, I think when he died, I think the world lost a really remarkable human being. Mm. His writing, and I, I think of Arrow of God as his most important novel. It's not even just that Chino Achebe was um, talented. He had an effortless talent at storytelling, but also he had a moral authority. And, and increasingly I find that to be something that is... Um, that is very appealing, not a kind of self, not in a self-righteous way, but just in a way that's, that, that sort of takes a stand for, for humanity and for dignity. And, and he, um, I think for many, many Africans of my generation and, and actually of, of the generations um, before mine, Chino Achebe gave us back a sense of pride. And it also taught me how much power literature can have. Mm. Because it's not just a story. It's, it's a kind of gesture of, of returning to you something, that, that, something of which you had been dispossessed. Mm. So he's, he's very important in, mm. in a way that, and not to diminish the other writers who did wonderful things, but I think he's uniquely important in that way. Mm. And of course, being a feminist isn't something that you just woke up in 2013 when you gave the talk and wrote the pamphlet. Do you see connections between these pamphlets and essays that you're writing now and your novels? Not really. No. (laughs) I mean, I guess I wrote them on the same computer, no. Yeah. Um, (laughs) It's very hard to... I I really don't know. I think the honest answer is I really don't know because I don't think... Because I, I think my novels come from a very different place. Yeah. Um, and, and also, the pam- I mean, it's funny because We Should All Be Feminists was not supposed to be a book. No. Right? It, was it was a, a talk. talk I gave, yeah, it was a TED Talk yeah. that I gave under some duress because my friend had sort of said to me, you have to give this TED Talk, we need <laughs> you. Um, and I said to him, I don't know what to talk about. You know, I already did the first TED Talk. And he said, well, there is the one thing you always lecture us about. <laughs> In and life, like give advice. Yeah, yeah, and I was like, really? Yeah. And he said, yes. And I said, what? Because I honestly did not know what it was that I, I apparently lectured everyone about. And he said, you're always telling us how women are equal. Mm. So he said, why don't you come talk about it? <laughs> <laughs> and so I thought, all right, if you say so. But I mean, I, I was kind of amused because it's that thing where you realize there's a self-awareness that you lack. Because I genuinely did not know that I was known among my family and friends <laughs> as, as lecturing them on, on um, <laughs> On gender, and so I gave that talk. I remember sort of scribbling it just before I went on stage, and so it wasn't supposed to become a book. And I mean, when the idea came up, I kind of resisted initially because I just thought, I don't think words that are written to be spoken necessarily walk mm. on the page mm. because it's a different cadence, it's a different thing. And but you know, finally, I thought, all right, if you know, because it said to me it's going to reach more people, all of that. So I thought, okay, let's try that. And and then the second the second pamphlet <laughs> wasn't really supposed to be a book either. Mm. So I don't think of them at all as books, mm. really. I mm. mean, you know, I'm very grateful that people buy them, but yeah. <laughs> I just I really don't. Yeah. I mean, this is the honest thing. I really don't. And 
my novels come from a very different place. My novels come from the part of me that is, um, I think of fiction writing as my vocation. I think of it as what I'm supposed to be doing on earth. Mm. I, I, and I'm happiest when I'm doing it. Mm. And it comes from, from a place that is so much more complex, a place that also, that also has some uncertainty. Mm. My pamphlets do not come from uncertainty. I'm no, like, you're very yep, self-assured. Yep, yep, this, like, is this, is yep. this is the way to live. This is the way to live. And no other way. <laughs> yeah. My way or the highway. Yeah. Right? <laughs> that's where the pamphlets come yeah. from. But my novels come from, from a place that's uncertain, mm. right? um, which I think is necessarily true of art, really, that it has to come from uncertainty. But, but my, when I talk about feminism, I'm, I, I'm, I'm very sure. Right? Mm. I, I'm, I never wake up on some days and think, maybe women are not equal. No. I'm mm. always like, yep, yeah, they are. <laughs> but at times I wake up and I'm, I'm sort of, you know, the, sort of this emotional... Um, thinking about character and motivation and you know sometimes I, f I change my feelings about my characters sometimes I, all of that happens with fiction does not with my when I pontificate about gender yeah <laughs> because your novels seem the absolute opposite of uh, pontification <laughs> and have really nuanced characters and extremely nuanced love stories as well mm. Yeah. One point uh, that you make in the essay is to resist the idea, as we talked about, that women need to be so much more likable than yeah. men. Yeah. Uh, and I think you've had some criticism from for your heroines that they're not likable yes. enough. Yes, yes. <laughs> there are many people who said to me, actually, I, I, so I was in the supermarket in Lagos maybe two weeks ago, and a young man comes up to me and, he, and he's very excited, he wants to take pictures. And then just from nowhere he says to me, I really don't like Ifemelo. Yeah. And she's the protagonist yes, of Americana. Yes, of Americana. And I thought, I mean, on the one hand, I really admired his forthrightness. But then I thought, there's something odd about this, right? That you're making this announcement. And so I said to him, um, I said to him, if she had a penis, would you dislike her as much? Mm. And I was taken aback. Like, oh, she said the word. Yeah. <laughs> but I think... <laughs> but I think... The point I was trying to make to him is that not just your dislike of her, but your willingness to proclaim it in this way mm. is gendered. Mm. You know, you're, um, and, and you know, she's obviously not likable in that easy way that that female characters are supposed to be. But I like her, mm. and and I and I think there was a part of me that was resisting that likability. You know, that that which often means reduce yourself, be easy, mm. be easy to please. You know, don't have complications. Um, and don't make bad choices. And mm. I think women should bloody well be allowed to make bad choices. Yeah, yeah. and she makes quite a few bad she choices. Does. <laughs> <laughs> she does. She does. But you know, we, we because because people are human, and I think I think the major point of being human is that we're flawed, and that um, you know, in the end, I think being human is being flawed, and that you keep trying. You know, mm. you keep trying to be better. You keep trying to be good. And I think when men make bad choices, we're much more forgiving. Mm. In some ways, we expect men to make bad choices. Yeah. Right? But we start <laughs> off expecting women not to, and when they do, good Lord. Yeah. It's, it's, boys it's, will be boys. Yep. They're, just, they're just playing yep. around. Yep. But, you know, the women who've come up to me and said, her man was so good to her. Why did she do that to Why him? How that could him? she? Yeah. <laughs> Switch it around and just that question would never happen. Yeah. You know, we... We, we need to be kinder to women. Yeah. But why would you only want to read about likable people? <laughs> I know. I mean, I, you know, I read some books and, and there's sort of this increasing tendency, in, in especially people who do um, 
MFA workshops in the U.S. and and I can tell, you know, you can tell a, you can tell a character who who's been shaped by this idea of likability, and and I find it ultimately boring because mm. I just think, come on, you know, do you really never have one thought that is not good? I mean, are yeah. you really this noble and pure? Come on, mm. it, it, then what's you know, it just becomes unbelievable and just <sighs> uninteresting. Mm. And do these readers only see purity around them in Apparently. other people? Yeah. <laughs> Apparently. And, and you know, for me, it's also just, this, it, it's just dishonest. You know, I yeah. just find it deeply dishonest. Yeah. Another aspect of Americana, which I really love, is the fact that it's a great love story. I mean, it's so romantic. <laughs> and you're so good at describing being in love and being attractive and sexual desire and all of these things. Uh, even though it's not like everything works out super great all the time, it's really about desire and love. Uh, how do you write about love? It I can don't be know. such a cliche, you know, it's so difficult. How do you go about writing something like that? Perhaps I should start by saying not from personal experience. Yeah. <laughs> do you know, I think... <laughs> um, well, because I love love, really... And because and because I I hide I hide quite often my um, my tendency to be a hopeless romantic. I hide it underneath sort of layers of um, something. But also it's it's but but there's something conscious about it because as a reader, I I find that I'm drawn to to love stories that and I, and I think that love is the most important thing in the world. I really do believe that. Um, but also all kinds of love, not just romantic love, right? I think if you took love out of the universe, I don't think there would be any point. Yeah. Um, but but I find that as a reader, I'm drawn to stories about love that are that are textured and gritty. I, I when I'm reading a book and it comes to the love scene, and suddenly they're writing about the the waves of the ocean, and I'm just <laughs> thinking, no, right? I'm, I'm interested in skin and texture, and, and I find that just more believable and real, and also how awkward it is, right? Mm. Because you know how in the movie, <laughs> and, I, and I sort of, I blame the American film industry for destroying the, the reality of love and love scenes, mm. you know, in the way that um, I've just always been annoyed by things like, and they're also the book versions, but but the film ones are so much more sort of dramatic. Where, you know, he they're in the kitchen, for example, and suddenly he sweeps everything on the table off to the ground, <laughs> yeah. and he puts her down. The, and you're just thinking, this is so stupid because yeah. a somebody needs to clean up all that, and why would you why would you break you know you're not breaking the sauce. Yeah, why would you break your yeah? It's ridiculous. Yeah. You, you, you break your glasses because, and then, and then the other thing I'm thinking is actually not really comfortable. Mm. No, particularly for the woman, not comfortable. So I just think, who does that? Mm. Right? <laughs> and yeah, and, and actually, when I was writing Americana, I and I'm also known to ask people inappropriate questions because I think it's a way that the novelist. You, you need to, and so just in doing a brief um, survey of people who are close to me. I, nobody's ever done that. Mm. <laughs> people generally like comfort. Mm. Um, <laughs> Soft beds. Yeah, yeah, those work better. And, and also, and, and, and there's an awkwardness, I think, to just to being attracted to somebody that I find quite lovely and moving. Mm. 
um, and, and an imperfection. I mean, I think that's the thing for me. There's an imperfection to it, and I think that's beautiful. And I try in my writing to capture that. And, and as a reader, I'm drawn to that. When I, mm. when, I, when I find that in a book, I find it very beautiful mm. because it just feels real and human. Mm. And, and, and I'm, I don't trust perfection mm. of any kind, you know. And, um, but then, of course, <laughs> writing, uh, I mean, writing about love is a choice in a way. I, you, I think you could choose not to. And I, and I choose to because, because I want to celebrate love. Because I think love is lovely and sex and sexuality mm. and desire. And for me, particularly female desire. I mean, I, I, I think we just need to start... Yeah, I don't want to go into a rant, but <laughs> I, get, I get very upset about how female sexuality is seen and controlled mm. all over the world, mm. all over the world. It's, I think the same instinct, for example, that in some parts of the world compels women, compels women to cover themselves completely, is the same instinct that, for example, um, in, in the West does this thing they call slut shaming. Yeah. And it's interesting that you can't slut shame a man. Mm. Right? You can only slut shame a woman. Mm. And and you start to wonder why. It's, it's because really fundamentally, female sexuality is something that all of these cultures are very uncomfortable with. I think a lot of the people that dislike my character in Americana is because she's clearly a sexual being. Mm -hmm. and, and a woman said to me, one, a woman who, an, an American woman who didn't like, who said, I liked your book, but I didn't like your character. And she said to me um, that she was very offended by my character saying that she had... Um, slept with a man because she was curious. Mm. And she said, that is so wrong. Who mm. does that? Who does that? Yeah. <laughs> Everyone? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you have really complex love stories because in Half of Yellow Sun, you have a really complex love story yeah. between... Uh, Kinena and uh, the white Richard Churchill who yes. goes to who is in love with Biafra and thinks that he is more Nigerian Biafrian than anyone else, and they are a really complex love story. Uh, yeah, he she is kind of the heroine of that love story. She takes care of the entire love story. He becomes impotent, uh, or he is mostly, or yeah, he struggles. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But still, she yeah. loves him. Yeah. And you've had a lot of discussion about this male <laughs> character, haven't yes, you? Yes. A lot of like male journalists have yes. asked you about this. Yes, uh, yes. This white British guy. Yes, yes. Many white male journalists have asked yeah. me about this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they've always been very concerned. They're very concerned for him. Yes. That he's struggling. They, they've, somebody said to me I was unfair to him. Yeah. And I thought, but, but why? Why are you saying I was unfair to him? I mean, and, and I have to say that Richard is a character I like very much. And I think it's kind of obvious that the, the author has some affection for that character. Very right? obvious. And so to be accusing, you know, they would say to me, you were unfair to him. Um, and this, somebody said to me, you were malicious in, in your portrayal of him. And I thought, no, I wasn't. It's simply that you're not used to seeing the white man not being the all-powerful, all-in-charge. Yeah in a book that's set in Africa, right? Yeah. So this is not Graham Greene, and this is not, I mean, so he's human and vulnerable, and it makes you uncomfortable. 
and, and, and I wasn't trying to, I mean, the, the fact that he struggles, as you put it um, <laughs> mildly, it isn't supposed to stand for anything. I mean, there are people who said to me, you know, are you really saying something about... No, I'm just saying that he's a man, and yeah. that happens sometimes, and, yeah. you know... Yeah. And it's just a very sweet love story. Yes. I mean, she really feels very affectionate about this oh, guy. Oh, she, she absolutely yeah. loves him. She, she, loves she him. sees in him. And I kind of thought about, um, when I started writing Richard, I remember feeling slightly uncomfortable because I thought I'm writing this white man who's English and, you know, everything that I'm not. And I wanted him to be part of the story because I think it's impossible to talk about Biafra without talking about the involvement of, of foreigners, particularly the English or oh, the British, rather. And so when I started writing him, I, I was very stiff, and I, was, I felt that I was aping um, a certain kind of sort of stilted language, that I was sort of doing um, Henry James. Yeah. You know, the, the language was convoluted and straight, and it wasn't me, because I was mm. thinking I'm now writing Richard. But at some point I realized Richard is not just... Yeah, he's an Englishman, he's white, whatever, but fundamentally he's a person who's looking for belonging. And I think thinking about it that way made it very easy for me mm. um, because, you know, it's just that idea that underneath it all, there are things that are universal for all of us that we kind of want to be valued. And that's what he's looking for. And he, he didn't find it where he came from, and which is why he then sort of embraces with this sort of almost unseemly enthusiasm, Biafra and the cause, and of course the woman. And for her, I think Richard represents, you know, everything that, that she... Um, isn't yeah you know so so she um she sort of puts up this front of being very sarcastic and, and actually cynical and hard mm. and and suddenly there's richard who who embraces his vulnerability and she finds this madly attractive and she wants to be with him and she's the kind of woman who loves while resisting loving mm. you know yeah yeah but it kind of adds to the magic. And so I, I actually thought, and Kainan is a character I really admired, and I, I thought it was a really lovely love story. And, and to then be confronted by these aggrieved white men, um, for me, it was interesting. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> to say the least. And so this is a love story set in a novel about a really serious uh, war, mm. um, the Biafran War between 1967 and 1970. Yep when uh, Biafra in the south of Nigeria declared itself a republic. Um, and uh, you've said that this is a story that you've known that you've always needed to write. Yeah. What, what, what is it about it that makes it so important for you to write about this? Because it's my, uh, my, it's my country's history. It's my family's history. It's, it's a thing, I think, that most shaped my family. My, my father lost his father. My mother lost her father in the war in refugee camps. And I grew up knowing that this war had really shaped my family. And, and so for a long time, I wanted to understand it. And, and so you, you kind of grew up in the shadow of, of this memory and you don't quite understand it, but it's everywhere. It's, it's people mention it in passing. My mother would say, you know, this happened before the war and then after the war. And, and so I think I just kind of always knew. I, f I felt a kind of responsibility. I felt that... that I really did feel that somehow my, you know, the spirits of my great-grandmother and, and grandfather wanted me to, to write it because mm -hmm. I was just obsessed and haunted and, 
and it just wouldn't leave me. And so for many years, I read everything I could find about that period. I, you know, I looked at archives. I, I mean, I was obsessed for mm. many years. And when I finally finished the book, I remember going into a very strange depression because it felt, you know, it was done. And in some ways, I was happy it was done, obviously, because it had taken so long. But, but also, I felt bereft because I almost didn't know what to do with myself. Mm. And I had all these files of research that I didn't actually end up not getting into the book. But I remember just sitting there, just feeling the strangest thing because mm. a part of my life was over. Mm. And you did a lot of research, as you say. Mm. How did you square all of that historical research? Because I think you're quite... Uh, the facts need to be right mm. where there are mm. facts. Mm. But there is also a lot of imagination... Yes, I, I wanted to make sure I got the major facts right because I knew that for many people in my generation that book would also be history. Yeah, but but Maybe I remember the first book that they read. Yeah, about many we, the we, don't, we don't learn about the war in school. You don't? No, nope. no, nope. no. Nope. Why is that? Is it too? Uh... Because because Nigeria, like all countries, I think hides parts of its history that yeah. makes it uncomfortable, um, diminishes it. So we don't really learn anything. So mm. many people who are my age don't know what the hell happened in 1967. Mm. And, and my, this book started a conversation, and now there are more stories coming out. There's, you know, it's sort of, and of course now also it's interesting because there's now a new Biafran movement. But, um, I mean, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't even remember what the question was. No, how did you square the, the factual research part and oh, the right, more by, imaginative by uh, novelist by, part? By doing all the research and then, and then in a kind of way stepping away from it. Yeah. You know. So I needed the research as a framework, but, I, but it was important for me not to let that overburden the story because I, I had read many novels that are historical and... And I found that they didn't quite succeed on the level of fiction because they were overburdened by the research. And I also made peace with not using everything. Mm. I mean, I have, I have a load of material. And there are times when I thought, oh, I have to find a way to find use that. Find a way to use yeah. it. Yeah, write I'd essays. Like, oh, my God, write really? That German mercenary really did that? Yeah. And then I'd be like, no, you know, <laughs> don't force it. And so it, it also meant, um, yeah, it meant letting go of many things that I had found. Because I wanted it to be about human beings, about people. Mm. And I wanted it to be a book that a person who didn't particularly care about that history mm. would be able to get into. Mm. Um, and you said that it started the debate or it has changed some things about how you talk about the war in Nigeria. Mm. In what ways? Uh, I mean, just even the this? fact that people, that it is being talked about. Yeah. That... Um, when I was writing the book, many people said to me, leave it alone, you're looking for trouble. And my Nigerian publisher said to me, you have to be prepared for anything when we do the launch in Lagos. And, and I was. I mean, I wasn't sure what would happen, but I thought anything can happen. Right? Um, so that's how contested mm. that, that subject is. And so, you know, that people started to read it, that it's still being read, that it's read in some um, schools, that, that now talking about Biafra is something people do. Yeah. It's no longer a thing that's shrouded. I think it, that sort of... This, and, and I think when you talk about real things that happened and you're, you're doing it with... Um, sort of talking about it through fictional characters, I think it's easier for people. Mm. You know, so... 
But, but again, I think it also brought things up. I mean, I, I remember the first event I did, and suddenly it sort of became two sides of the of the hall screaming mm. at one another. Because the conflict was still alive. Yeah, because yeah. The, the one side were people whose, whose families had been in Biafra and the other side were people whose families had been in Nigeria and suddenly they were just going at each other. I found this very exciting because I, I enjoy conflict when I'm not involved personally in it. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> it's better on, at a distance. distance. <laughs> no, but it was just, uh, for me, it was, there was something about it that I hoped would mean that we start to understand one another's stories. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And you've written now two pamphlets, but you're mostly a novelist. Um, how do you see yeah, No. In which form is it easier to be truthful, do you think, in fiction or in non-fiction? Fiction. Fiction, yeah. <laughs> and why is that? Um, <laughs> because, you, because there's nothing at stake, because there are no consequences for you, mm. because you can hide. And so you, you're, likely, you're likely to be more truthful if you're hiding. Mm. And, um, and because you don't have anybody to protect. When I'm writing nonfiction, when I write essays, or if I had to write a piece about my family, for example, I would be very careful about how I portray them because I love them. Mm. And, um, and, you know, I would have this sort of moral responsibility. With fiction, I don't. They're yeah. characters. I made them. I'm their god. Yeah. You know, I can, you know, and, and there's a sense in which you're now giving space to be radically honest. I, I can go to places emotionally in fiction that I, I just wouldn't in nonfiction because I even want to protect myself. Mm. But I, I don't think I could ever write really honestly about some feelings I have because I, I don't want to. Right? I don't want to let the world into my... No, my why idea. would you want people to see that yeah. naked yeah. inside? Yeah. But you can use it. Yeah, but fiction, yeah, yeah, because it's a character, it's not me. Yeah, you talk about emotional truth. Yes. Uh, I think emotional truth is, is it, it comes, it's, it's, in some ways, it, it comes from a place of deep honesty, radical honesty. You can't be emotionally true if you're cagey or if you're, you have to be honest. And, mm. and it's the kind of thing you can't define, but you know it when you see it. When I'm reading a book, I can tell. I can tell when a writer is, is just not being honest. Mm. Um, and I can tell when that writer has gone to a place that's difficult and true and just it feels emotionally honest. And, and those are the books I find that I respond to. Those are the books that can make me cry sometimes um, or just change my mood. You know, you sort of read a novel and suddenly it, you're, it shifts you internally. Mm. And I mm. think that comes from a certain kind of emotional truth. Mm. And of course, writers never like this question, but I have to ask it anyway. Are you working on a new novel now? <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> no answer. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> so, uh, our time will be up very soon. That's the worst question to ask. I know, writer. I know, it's terrible. <clears throat> Uh, our time will be up soon, and as you said, you've been here several times in Oslo, and you do work uh, a bit with the National Library in Norway. And, I uh, do indeed. Yes. I'm happy to know the National Librarian of Norway. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Aslaksi Ramire. Yeah, and I understand that there is now a project of digitization for literature in Nigerian languages. This is true. Yeah. <laughs> well, really, thanks to Aslak. I wish I could take credit for it, but it, it was all his idea. Um, I mean, the, the, you know, the, the subject of, of, of literatures in Nigerian languages is an interesting one, and for me, being an Igbo person who 
you know, I love my language, I love my culture. We don't really have a thriving literature, and it's, it's something that's sad. So the idea of... Um, the idea of saving what is, is, I just think, very... Um, it's important. Mm. It's important, and so... Um, I think I think the National Library uh, has a very good um, mm. person in charge. Yeah, and are you surprised that it's happening exist. here in Oslo? This uh, preservation um, of Nigerian am I surprised? Literature? No, because I think that literature is universal. Um, yeah. I think that uh, you know, I think that being interested in, in in the literatures of other countries is 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 a very good thing. And, and not just in a sort of oh I'm helping her, but also that yeah. you, you that that it's good for you that that reading you know knowing about having having this this archive. So does it? In, uh, no, it doesn't really surprise me. Um, I, I have to say that my standards for Norway are generally high, so I'm not <laughs> surprised. I mean, there are some other countries in Europe that I would be shocked that they did that. Yeah. They will remain unnamed. However. They will be unnamed. <laughs> For the time being, they will be remain yeah, unnamed. Yeah. For now. Yeah. So I can see that our time will be up uh, now, uh, and we hope that you will be back here again. Oh, uh, I will. I will. That's wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Anna. Thank you, Chimamanda. <laughs> and thank you to everyone for coming. You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotek.